Oh shit, are we recording? What's up? This is the Fuck the Status Quo podcast. I am your host, Ellie Blake, and this is a place where we discuss getting your shit together. Why? Because the more people on the planet getting their shit together and being the best version of themselves means the less assholes there are. I'm down for that. Are you down for that? All right, let's go. What is up, bitches? It's Ellie Blake. Welcome back to the Fuck the Status Quo podcast, a place where we talk about how to become the best version of yourself and encourage you to do shit your own way so that there can be less assholes in the world. That's the ultimate goal here. Less assholes. So on this next interview, it's fucking sweet. I talked to an old friend of mine, Jonah Lupton. You might be one of his over half a million Twitter followers, but I first met him as the guy who worked at the same Irish pub as me in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I was a complete ass clown back in those days. But Jonah was already onto some shit and working hard at his goals. He was a bouncer at the bar we worked at as he was building his business. And I actually think we ended up working at a few different bars together because we were hustlers. <laughs> but what I love about this conversation with Jonah is hearing about the different business ventures he tried and some of the things that didn't work out, but he learned so much from them. Jonah has a lot going on these days, to say the least. You'll hear all about it. But one of the main things that I got out of this conversation was just to be able to adapt to change and be willing to fail and then start over again from scratch. We talk about investing in this episode, but I think Jonah will have my back when I say the ultimate investment is yourself, yo. This conversation is so inspiring. I really enjoyed hearing Jonah's story and how he got to where he is today. So without further ado, let's welcome Jonah Lupton to the Fuck the Status Quo podcast. What up, Jonah? Welcome to Fuck the Status Quo podcast. Thanks for being here. Hi, Crump. How you been? <laughs> People listening here be like, what's Crump? <laughs> what's the story <laughs> behind that? That's my maiden name. Uh, anyways... First question I wanted to ask you is what is the best thing you've ever done for yourself? So I don't know if I can pick one. I mean, it did take me a while to come up with something because you kind of you told me this question was coming. The first thing that popped into my mind was actually moving to Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm from the Northeast. I grew up in Jersey and then moved to Cape Cod with my family when I was a teenager. Grew up on Cape Cod, went to school in Rhode Island, then moved to Boston. So I'd always I'd always lived in the Northeast. And worked in finance out of college, did that for eight, nine, 10 years, working for like Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, you know, the big Wall Street firms, and just got burned out from working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and dealing with clients and the roller coaster and the stress that comes with the stock market. So in 2013, uh, I just knew that I needed to get out of the Northeast and, and live somewhere new. And uh, I had a friend or a cousin that lived in Wilmington. So I went down and checked it out, loved the area and moved down there for, for a couple of years. So, and made a lot of great friends, including yourself. I mean, that's Hell how, yeah. that's how we know each other. So, so that's one, I don't know. I mean, like number two, I would say, I mean, some people know my startup stories, you know, I mean, I did a few startups when I left finance. I started a supplement company, go Nutrispire. Nutrispire. <laughs> 
Um, and then I started SoundGuard and most people didn't think that company would become anything. They thought it would be impossible, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I spent a year and a half after I left Wilmington. And that's the main reason I left is because I knew I needed to focus on uh, developing the product and then hopefully launching the company and then maybe even raising money from investors, all of which happened. But it took me like a year and a half to develop that product in a lab with a couple chemists. And then we got that product, you know, we had to go to the labs and get it tested and certified. And then I, I then I actually had to get the product approved by Sherwin Williams and PPG, which are the two biggest paint companies. So we were actually doing pretty well in 2019. And I was proud of myself. Like I have some horror stories from those three years, like just the sacrifices I had to make. Like I had to move in with my parents just to save money so I could afford to, you know, invest in this company and, and try to make it happen. You know, I was working 50, 60 hours during the week. And then I was working five or six nights a week at the bars and the clubs bouncing, just trying to make some extra money. So, and I didn't have a car. So I was like riding my bike to work in the middle of the winter time, like just crazy stuff, right? Most things that most people would not do because they're just, they're insane. But like, I knew that I could make SoundGuard something big if I really applied myself. So I was willing to make the sacrifices. Fast forward to 2019, I raised money from investors. I started to hire people. We were out there doing projects for big hotel groups. I did a project for this big hotel group in Boston. Well, I guess they have Boston properties. Technically, they're based in Texas. And they were so impressed by the results, they offered to buy SoundGuard for $10 million. And I turned it down because I just spent three years busting my ass, living like <laughs> a poor person in my parents' basement. I wasn't about to sell out for $10 million when I knew that this could be, you know, 50 or $100 million someday. Little did I know the freaking COVID pandemic was going to come around and fuck us all. So, you know, when you're selling a product into the hotel industry, and then the worst pandemic in 100 years shuts down the entire hotel industry, it's not really good for your company. <laughs> yeah, to so, say the least. <laughs> so I put the company on the back burner. And I mean, I've moved on to other things since. But ironically, I got an email today from a uh, contractor in Florida, and they're looking to order about $200,000 of SoundGuard paint. So like there's projects out there. I just I'm not out there chasing them around anymore like I was a few years ago. Yeah, I get it. Is it something where you don't think that it could come back? Is it just too far gone from COVID? It could come back, but it's going to take yeah. like a really dedicated CEO and a small team working full time to go out and find the projects and get the product specced into those projects. Like that's the tedious part is like flying all over the country, doing these mock-ups and tests for hotel groups and architects and designers and contractors, and then trying to get our products specced into those plans for the upcoming renovation. It's just like an 18 to 24 month process from when you contact them to do the mock-up to then when that project actually happens and they place the order for the paint. And there's a million things that could go wrong. You know, like number one is these projects start, they all go over budget. And by the time they get to paint, they're like, oh shit, you know, we're already $5 million over this budget. Like we got yeah. we got to start cutting stuff out. So you know, you guys are no longer in the specs. Like that happened a couple times too. So yeah, I didn't even think about that because paint is the last thing. So I guess we should back up for a second. Just give a brief, like what is SoundGuard? So when I was living in Wilmington in a condo or a townhouse, I had noisy neighbors on both sides of me. 
So mm-hmm. I, 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 we all know. Like, we all, Didn't we all? We all live this. When I asked the landlord if they could do something, they brought in a general contractor and the general contractor is like, the only thing you can really do is rip these walls apart and basically build better walls or cut holes in the walls and like spray insulation and then patch them up. But either way, it becomes like an expensive tedious project that most people are not going to want to pay for. So I just thought like, why isn't there an, an easier solution to this? So I looked around and couldn't find any soundproofing paint. So I decided to create something. And that's where I called, you know, like I'm not a chemist, so I couldn't go into a lab myself and create yeah. I had to try to find chemists to partner with. And I called like five or six different paint labs or chemistry labs across the country. And I finally found a team in Connecticut that had a manufacturing facility. So like they were an existing paint company with a couple chemists on their team. And they basically said, we'll help you develop this product. But once you develop it and take it to market, we want to do the manufacturing for you. And I'm like, that sounds pretty fair. Cause I don't, That's fair, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to set up my own manufacturing facility. So you yeah. know, we, we spent a year and a half in their lab developing the product. And then like what you have to do is every time you develop a formula, you got to go find some walls to spray So then you can spray the walls, do some sound testing, and then compare it to the last formula. And you just keep doing that over and over with different formulations until you think you've sort of maxed out on what you can get for sound reduction. And then once you have that, then you got to go to like a company called Intertech, which has these huge million dollar sound testing facilities. I went to the one in York, Pennsylvania. They literally build walls, like a real wall with studs and insulation and drywall. And then I have to go down there and spray the walls and then they wait for it to dry. And then they put those walls into their chambers and then they do like the really hardcore sound testing. And then that gives you like an actual STC report, Mm -hmm. which is what you need to go show the architects and the designers and whatnot before they'll spec your product. Like they're not going to spec your product unless you can show them like actual lab testing results. So (laughs) I'm envisioning just like, someone making the loudest fucking noise possible, like blasting music, banging. What do they do for these sound tests? Like it, like the labs? Yeah. Like what are they doing to test it? Do they blast music or like what's up? They bring in these huge speakers, like monster speakers, and they usually play brown noise. Okay. So there's, there's like white noise, yeah, yeah. Noise, brown noise, and it's like different frequencies. Brown noise is like a little bit more rumbling and has more bass to it. Okay. White noise is like the, the <laughs> like the high pitched static. Like if you're flipping through the radio stations and like you're in between stations and you hear like that annoying static, like that's that's like that's what white noise sounds like. So they put in these big speakers and you know they play brown noise at like 120 decibels. Okay. And then they have the receivers on the other side of the chamber on the other side of the wall that's obviously taking recordings and they you know they just they do that. They build a wall, they put it in the chamber, they test it, and then they take it out. I spray it, and then they put it back in. Okay. So then, so they're just comparing the yeah. results before w- and after. Way less exciting than what I was picturing. <laughs> Definitely not exciting. I mean, where it gets a little <laughs> bit more exciting is when I'm doing these tests for hotels. Yeah. They don't really give a shit what the report says, right? Like they want to know, okay, that's fine. Like you've reduced the sound by eight, nine, ten decibels in a lab in in Pennsylvania. How the hell does that help me in my property in, in Dallas, Texas? So that's why I have to go there and spray the walls and then do some sort of like a real test for them. So what we do is the rooms are typically cleared out, you know, because like they don't want to get paint all over the furniture. So Makes sense. Know, it's basically two empty rooms side by side. 
and we'll set up a chair in one room. And I always have like my portable speaker with me. So I'll hook it up to my phone and I'll play a podcast, you know, where it's two people talking. So it's like voices and, you know, which is typically the noise that you would hear in a hotel room. Like that's what would bother the, you know, the neighbors. So play that at like 80 decibels, which would be like a couple coming home at one in the morning, drunk, you know, <laughs> loud or playing the TV too loud. Like that's probably 75 or 80 decibels. So play that in the middle of the room. And then we go into the other room and we can literally just stand there and we can hear that noise coming through. Before we spray the wall, you know, you can hear the conversation. Like you can make out the words that they're saying in the podcast. And then what we do is the next morning we spray the walls. You know, it's like an all day project because you got to wait a couple hours for the coats to dry. And then a couple of days later, after the paint's cured on the wall, we all go back into those rooms and we do the exact same test again, same podcast at the same point in the podcast, same decibel levels, right? Everything. And then you can hear the difference. Normally, you know, there's people over there, but you can't understand the words. Like it's very muted. So that's why we sort of call it like privacy paint, because you can still hear like some murmuring from the other side of the wall, but the words are not legible anymore. And if you turned on like the air conditioner in your room, it would probably drown out that soft muffle that was coming through after the paint was applied to the walls. That's kind of the difference before and after. I mean, that's cool to travel around and just try new shit for sure. Experiment, play a little scientist. I dig it. I lived out of a suitcase for like two years. I didn't have a home. I didn't have an address. I was on the road for two years straight. That's its pros and cons, I think, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was fun for a while because I got to see like every city in the U.S. Yeah. I was in San Francisco four or five times. I was in Dallas four or five times. Austin, Chicago, Nashville, Tampa, Fort Lauderdale, D.C., like pretty much everywhere. But I was always by myself. So like it does get lonely after a while when you're just traveling by yourself, living out of hotels, eating out every single meal. Yeah. Trying to find a gym in every city. Leg <laughs> so, day, bro. Leg day. <laughs> oh, leg day. Can't skip that. <laughs> so when I met you, we worked at a bar together. You were a bouncer. I bartended. And then you had Nutraspire. <laughs> and was that your first baby? No, no, no. That was like fourth or fifth. <laughs> okay. Let's like go through your story of your experiences and trials. <laughs> when I left in, uh, I left the investment world in 2012. I started two or three different internet companies, mm-hmm. one of which was called Strived, like kind of a stupid name, but it was meant to be a competitor to bodybuilding.com, you know, which is basically a superstore for supplements, right? Where you can buy any brand from BSN or Quest, right? Like whatever. I'm not really sure what I was thinking, but you know, I got the the website up and running. I partnered with all of these different brands. And then I partnered with like a aggregator. I forget the name of the company now because it's been 10 years, but you know, they had all of these relationships and what's called like an API. So I would plug in the API to my website. And when orders would come into my website, they would get sent over to this company. And this company would basically drop ship those products to the customer. So like, it was pretty seamless. Like all I really had to do on my end, I mean, I spent 20 or $30,000 building a custom website, you know, and there's obviously other expenses that go around with it, but mm-hmm. I underestimated how much money I had to spend on marketing on customer acquisition, because you're competing against all of these other supplement websites, including bodybuilding.com, which obviously has a big brand to start with. 
And then the other problem was like the margins are so freaking thin. The gross margins on an order, you know, where you're selling someone else's product are probably like 15 or 20% if you're lucky. And then once you start to take out sales and marketing expenses, legal payments, all the other shit, you're basically not left with anything. So the profit margins on that sort of a business are so thin, you have to do such a massive volume to actually make any money and have money to actually pour into marketing. So I'm like, screw this. Why am I selling other people's products and not making any money? Why don't I just create my own product? So I went to a nutritional supplement lab and worked with them to create my own products, which eventually became Nutrispire. Okay. Do you like find these labs numbers and physically call them like, hi, I want to try this? Or like, how do you even get into a lab to test your product? You can search for them on Google and find them and ask for a list of their top customers. You call the customers and you ask, you know, just ask them questions about how's your relationship been with XYZ lab, you know, any problems. I mean, you can do like some background research on these labs and make sure they have like the right certifications. One's called the GMP certification. That's like the standard in the lab industry, you know, just to make sure that they have the proper equipment and, you know, everything is properly sanitized and whatnot. It's a pretty sketchy industry, which I learned over time. There are certainly plenty of companies that don't follow the rules. They put illegal stuff into their products to make them more addictive and they don't disclose that. Like, and the supplement industry, it's not regulated at all by the FDA. I think when you walk into like GNC or vitamin shop, you're probably thinking all these products are approved by the FDA. I did. That's crazy. Like none of them are. Oh my gosh. The only time the FDA gets involved is when people start to die. And then the FDA is like, oh shit, we have a problem with that product or that company. And then they start an investigation, but like nothing has to get approved by the FDA. That's crazy. I mean, like there's guidelines on how you're supposed to like disclose ingredients Plenty of supplement companies are willing to break those rules because they can make tons and tons of money before the FDA figures it out. And if they get a fine, that fine is usually like small compared to how much money they've made. Right. Damn, that's crazy. I didn't know that. The saying in the supplement industry is the pills pay the bills because the margins, like the profit margins on a bottle of pills is freaking ridiculous. So if I did like a order of, let's say my, the fat burner that I created, mm-hmm. which I called Blaze. <laughs> so funny, like I, I haven't talked about Nutrispire in like 10 years. I'm surprised I actually remember any of this stuff. But Bringing it back. For real. But you know, you create like a fat burner formula and there's a standard in the industry. Like most of these products nowadays all have the same stuff in it. You know, it's caffeine, it's willow bark, it's cinnamon extract. They're literally like 99% the same formulations. Like if you look at the labels and all of them, mm-hmm. or what they'll do is they'll put, instead of listing out the ingredients, they'll just put proprietary blend. So you think it's like something special when it's not. It's just like <laughs> the same shit as everybody else. So it's just one big scammy industry. But anyways, if I did a run of a thousand bottles, you know, with... 30 pills in each or 60 pills in each, and you take two pills a day. So it's a 30 day supply. Mm -hmm. I could get a bottle of a 30 day supply of fat burners for $3 and 50 cents. That's my cost. Holy shit. (laughs) $3 and 50 cents a bottle. And then I can turn around and sell those bottles for 30 bucks a pop, Mm -hmm. 50 bucks, whatever, like whatever someone's willing to pay. Yeah. So, I mean, like that it's three dollars and fifty cents is my cost. I'm selling it for thirty or forty dollars. There's like a ninety percent profit margin on that versus 
selling someone else's freaking fat burner and making like $3 a bottle on a $30 retail price. Like it's literally, it's the exact opposite when you're selling someone else's product versus creating your own product. Yeah. Wow. That's nuts. So Nutraspire was your own shit. Yep. Okay, cool. Own formulations. I mean, I did everything from like designing the labels. I mean, building the website. So I did all that crap myself. But like, I just realized, I mean, once you're in that industry and you're selling products, you're like, oh my God, I'm no, I'm the same as everybody else. It's the same protein. It's the same creatine. Like it just comes down to Mm -hmm. who wants to spend the most amount of money on marketing, who wants to bring in the most influencers and give them, you know, the most free stuff to promote your brand. And like, there's brands out there that are like doing 50, hundred million dollars a year in sales. Like I can't compete with them. Yeah. So like once you realize that it's just, you know, you're just one out of a 500 different companies selling the same products. I wanted to build something unique. I wanted to build a hundred million dollar company. So you know, trying to compete against a hundred other companies doing the same thing. Like I never would have started SoundGuard if there was a hundred other soundproof paint companies, right? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's one of those things too. When I, when I remember when I first heard about you doing SoundGuard, I'm like soundproof paint. Why the fuck didn't I think of this? I feel like it's always stuff like that where you're sitting there like, shit, why didn't I think of that? It seems so obvious. <laughs> yeah. I mean like Airbnb, like why yes. didn't I think of Airbnb? <laughs> Or Uber, right? Yeah, like, Uber, especially shit. Yeah. I mean, some of these ideas, like they're not and Airbnb, like, did someone think of that before? You know, the founders of Airbnb are no, right. they were bed and breakfast. <laughs> that was the premise. I mean, it's possible that someone sitting in their room thought of that idea first and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, that'll never work. Or, you know, in a couple of years, maybe I'll go after it. Not too many ideas are truly unique. It's it's all about the execution of the idea. Yeah. You know, do you have what it takes to bring this idea to the market and put in the hours and whatnot? And right, like Airbnb started off as three guys living in San Francisco, realizing that all the hotels got sold out during the big conference season. They literally put air mattresses in their living room and rented them out to people going to these conferences. Like ridiculous. I had no idea. Wow. In the beginning, they were having a hard time getting investors. Like every investor they reached out to was like, are you serious? Like you're going to rent couches to strangers? Like that's the stupidest idea ever. And they were like running out of money. So it was the presidential campaign with Barack Obama and John McCain. And in order to raise money for their company, they created Obama O's and McCain something. Like they created two cereals. put these guys' faces on it and sold the boxes online for like five or 10 bucks a piece. They made $40,000 selling cereal boxes. And like that $40,000 helped them, helped them keep the, you know, the lights on at Airbnb until they got into Y Combinator. So yeah, crazy story. Oh, that's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> the idea for Uber, I believe happened in a hot tub. Travis Calacanic, Chris Saka, all those guys were hanging out at like, I think it was Big Bear at someone's cabin in a hot tub. And they were like brainstorming. I think Travis pitched the idea for Uber. And most of the guys in the hot tub invested in in Uber's seed round. And the guys that put in like, I think twenty five dollars or $50,000 when Uber went public a couple of years ago, that $25,000 was worth like $100 million at the IPO. Crazy. Yeah. That's sick. I love to hear stories like this. It's so inspiring. It's motivating. It just keeps you in check. 
when I was going through the the tough days at SoundGuard, living at home, working 80, 90, 100 hours a week between SoundGuard and all the side jobs, I would listen to podcasts all the time about these stories to keep me motivated. You got to find ways to keep yourself motivated when you're just miserable every single day from the moment you get up until the moment you go to bed. You got to find something to keep you going. We interrupt this sweet-ass podcast episode for a message from our sponsor. What's up, you fucking perverts? Valentine's Day is right around the corner. Don't fuck it up. If you need a card that says something like, roses are red, violets are blue, sit on my face, or thanks for all the orgasms, head over to AskToldByLA.com, where you'll find this shit and more. And as a listener of this podcast, don't forget, you get 15% off with the discount code WAFFLES. Oh! And now back to the show. Okay, jump us forward to where you are now. What are you up to now? I know that you started. I wanted to ask you about this for sure. You have a mail list. Is that correct? Like an email list that you started? Yeah. Or is it a membership? Both? Both, right. Where did you get the idea to do that to begin with? And then tell me more about it. Tell me what you're up to now. So during the pandemic, SoundGuard was obviously in trouble. Hotels, COVID. So put that on the back burner. That was like spring 2020 when I literally had nothing going on at my parents' place. Gyms are closed. Everything's closed. You can't go anywhere. But the stock market's open. And I'm like, okay, I still have a little bit of money left in my investment account. Let me get back to managing my investments full time and we'll just take it from there. I'm thinking like, okay, maybe I'll get back in the investment industry. Maybe I'll go back into wealth management or investment banking. So I start managing my portfolio again. And I found this large community on Twitter called FinTwit, where it's like literally hundreds of thousands of people that talk about investing all day. And they share their ideas, they share their research, they share their charts, all of that good stuff. So I sort of you know, dove in and started building relationships with these people and posting my portfolio. And then, you know, typically at the end of every month, at the end of every quarter, you know, you're going to share your performance. So my performance in 2020 was really good. I was up like 200% in my portfolio, which was obviously much better than the market and much better than most other people. So because of that, people started to pay attention to what I was doing and what I was saying. So I decided to start a Substack newsletter in late 2020 where I would start to post my research. You know, the idea was to do one research report every week on a stock that I was very bullish on and share that with all my subscribers for free. So I did four free write-ups, you know, one per week in December of 2020. And that list grew from zero to probably five or 6,000 in those four weeks. Some of the stocks that I picked, you know, the the first four write-ups started to do very, very well in early 2021. So that got me more subscribers. And then I said, okay, I'm going to start charging for this because I'm putting a lot of time and effort into it. Like I'm putting 10 hours every week into those write-ups. Why should I just keep giving that away for free? Mm-hmm. So I, start, I started to charge $7 a month. And I told people that they'd be locked into that price if they signed up in the next two, two or three weeks. So all of a sudden, like three or 4,000 people signed up. And I was getting like a 1,000 signups a week. And people were doing the annual plans to lock in. Fast forward to like March 2021, and I have 10,000 paying subscribers on that list. And then I have like another 30,000 people that are on the free membership. And I made the mistake, like, first of all, I should have started charging more for the paid in the beginning. And I don't think I should have had a free, or at least what I shouldn't have done was 
I would do a write up and send it out to the paying subscribers. And then a week later, I would send it to the free subscribers. And like that, that wasn't enough time to like make the, the paying members feel special. So too many of them were churning off the paid plan and going to the free plan, knowing that yeah. they were going to get that write up a week later. And like, you wouldn't think $7 would be a good enough reason to jump, you know, from paid to free, but they were doing it. So like, that was my mistake. Like I miscalculated that, but you know, fast forward to today and I have 50,000 people on the free list. And then I have four or 5,000 people on the, on the paid list. So I've lost some paying members over the last year, but you know, that's because the market's been crap. You know, when people lose money on stocks, they get pissed at anybody but themselves exactly. and when <laughs> or the market. When you're, I mean, I'm still doing like I, so I have a team of like four people now at Lupton Capital that help me with research and all my writing. And they help me with these write-ups because we're doing five or six a month now. So, okay. I mean, you can't do five or six write-ups a month on different companies and be right all the time, right? Like you're going to have some losers in there and that gets people mad because they expect you to be right all the time. So I mean, that's just investing. I mean, the last year has been tough for a lot of people. The markets have obviously not been doing very well since late 2021 because of the Fed, because of the, you know, the economy slowing down, inflation. I mean, a lot of people lost a lot of money, but I mean, I still keep doing my write-ups. And then I have a trading room called on StockTwits. So that's where I post like all my daily trades, my portfolio, all of my charts or my technical analysis. And then I have like another, you know, two or three thousand people in there. So I mean, altogether, I have like, I don't know, I think five or 6,000 people, you know, across my two or three different services. And then starting in 2023, well, actually, starting in two weeks, I'm launching a podcast. Well, I'll be, I'll be interviewing CEOs of publicly traded companies and investors, like big hedge fund guys. Nice. The podcast is called Investing with the Whales. <laughs> Love it. Because <laughs> Jonah, Jonah and the Whale, right, from the Bible. So, like, it's a play on yeah. that. <laughs> And like in the investing world, like the guys that are running billion dollar hedge funds, like you call them the whales, right? Mm -hmm. They manage so much money and they make so much money. So they're they're whales. So I just thought it was kind of a, a funny name. So investing with the whales will launch in a couple of weeks. And then starting in, I think, February, Lupton Capital will start managing money for clients again. So I've been running my own money for the last couple of years, but like I think it's time for me to start managing client money as well. And you know, if I can get up to a couple hundred million dollars, charge one percent, I mean, you do the math, a couple million dollars a year in fees. So why not? Sounds pretty sweet to me. It could be. So what's your advice? Obviously, the economy is taking a shit. What's your investing advice for people right now? I mean, it depends on what kind of investor you are. Are you a long-term investor? And if that's the case, then you shouldn't worry too much about what the stock market does, you know, month to month, quarter to quarter. If you have cash flow, like if you have income and you have money left over at the end of every month to put into the market, in some ways, you actually want the market to pull back once in a while so you can buy into the market or into your favorite companies when they're on sale, basically, or, you know, when they're trading at, at lower prices. So like Shopify, right? I mean, Shopify is, we all know the company because, yeah. you know, there's literally millions of people out there that have built their e-commerce stores on top of Shopify. Now the stock is down like 80% from the all-time highs. I mean, the multiple that the stock was trading at was absolutely ridiculous a year ago, but you know, it, that price, it needed to correct. I mean, it needed to come down to reality. 
if you're bullish on Shopify as a company for the next five years and you haven't owned the stock, so you're not down 80%, for instance, like, you know, you love the fact that the, uh, that the stock has come down 80%. Now you get a chance to buy into this great company at a much cheaper price than where it was trading a year ago. Or, you know, Amazon, for instance, I mean, Amazon's almost 50% off of its highs. Uber, I mean, there's a lot of companies that are down 30, 40, 50%. I mean, these are still great companies. They just got too expensive, you know, and as revenues slow down, as earnings growth slows down, as the economy slows down, you know, margins contract, that's what affects stock prices. So, you know, this has been a, a painful correction for a lot of people. But if you're a long-term investor like me, you know, and I make decent money, so I have money at the end of every month to put into the market, I don't mind these pullbacks, you know, like I don't want the market going up every single month because then I'm just, you know, then I'm chasing the market higher and overpaying for companies. So, you know, pullbacks are are healthy and they give you a chance to, you know, buy these stocks on sale. Um, but I mean, I still focus on companies that can maintain strong fundamentals, like strong revenue and earnings growth, even in an economic slowdown. So, I mean, there are still certain sectors and industries that will perform better than others in a recession, which is essentially what we're in right now. Like you do not want to be in semiconductor stocks. Microsoft reported earnings after the close today, like I said, and they said that their Microsoft office business, you know, which is what, or their windows business, which is obviously impacted by computer sales, right? Cause that's like the software that goes into computers yeah. was down 15% year over year. You know, like people, like a lot of people bought computers and iPads and all that shit during the pandemic. They don't need to buy another computer right now. And if they're, you know, worried about losing their job or any of that stuff, they're not going to go out and spend money on, on new electronics. So, you know, retailers, for instance, like retail companies typically don't do well in a recession or people start to trade down from premium brand to basic brand. Okay. Let me say, so the ones that I'm the heaviest overweight right now, most bullish on is healthcare and med tech. So 25% of my portfolio is in medical device companies. Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, first of all, they have growth, they're profitable, they have earnings. But if you're going into a recession and someone needs a new hip or a new knee or they have heart surgery or whatever, it doesn't matter what inflation rates are. It doesn't matter what the unemployment rate is. Like you're going to get that procedure. So I just feel like healthcare in general is more defensive. Yeah. So if if you need to be in the market right now, like if you want to be invested, put your money into the sectors that are going to be a little bit more defensive if we go, you know, if we continue into this economic recession. So, like healthcare, med tech, my biggest holding is a company called Celsius. So, they're an energy drink company and they just signed a distribution deal with Pepsi. So, Pepsi's going to, you know, help them grow or increase their store count, take them into Canada, take them into Europe. So, it's a pretty big deal for the company you know, which is why I continue adding to my position, you know, even, yeah. even as the stock is pulled back 15 or 20%. So I've only been in the stock market game for like two years, but my best one is a pharmaceutical company. Yay? Nay? Yeah. I mean, I like, I don't do pharmaceutical or biotech because I just, okay. I mean, it's just too hard to understand. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. My uncle sent me a portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that. But yeah, my best one in the past only two years is that pharmaceutical company. I don't even remember what it's called. I know the uh, abbreviation for it. it's ABBV. Yeah, AbbVie. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. 
over the last year, as the markets have pulled back, pharmaceutical stocks have actually held up very well, which is part of like my whole healthcare theme is mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to recession, yeah. it doesn't like you're not going to stop taking your diabetes medicine or your cholesterol medicine, you know, just because we're going into a recession. So, you know, like those are the types of companies that hold up better during a economic slowdown. So what you can also do is like if you if you want to be in healthcare or in pharmaceuticals or in biotech, but you don't know how to pick an individual company or you don't want that single stock risk, that's where you can just buy an index ETF. There's an ETF for pharmaceutical companies that probably has 20 or 25 different pharmaceutical companies in it. So you can get exposure to the pharmaceutical industry without having to pick an individual company like an AbbVie or a Pfizer or a Merck or a Biogen, you know, that gives you exposure, but takes out some of the risk. Where do you invest in something like that? I use Fidelity. Yeah, Fidelity. Okay. I mean, I use interactive brokers. Like that's just the platform that I use right now. But I'm also starting to use a platform called Trade Zero because they are the sponsor for my podcast. <laughs> so, so we're going to be doing some stuff together. A lot of people use Robinhood, Webull. I mean, there's a number of platforms out there that you can buy ETFs through or individual stocks. Cool. Thank you. All right. How do you feel about crypto and NFTs? I, I've never owned crypto before. I've definitely never owned NFTs. I think NFTs, like, and I think most people are finding this out the hard way. I think most of them are going to end up being pretty worthless, but I really don't know much about the market. I know there's like the whole apes thing and NFTs are so far over my head. Like I barely even understand it. Same. Crypto is like, I get the use case for some crypto, especially in economies outside of the US where they don't have a stable currency. Inflation rates are out of control. You can't trust the government. The banks aren't as secure Mm -hmm. as the US. Like, I get it. These governments can get destabilized so quickly. So I understand the, the value of having a digital currency that isn't tied into any of that stuff, the corruption, the, the currency fluctuations, et cetera. But those are also like small markets compared to the US. Like I think if crypto is ever going to get big, like you need to have participation from, you know, the US and China and Europe and whatnot. And like I still worry about regulators coming in and, you know, putting their foot down. But then the other thing that like still I can't get out of my head is. So Bitcoin's obviously the biggest and there's obviously, you know, there's Ethereum and Solana and other ones that I barely understand. Yeah. <laughs> I think most people buy Bitcoin because they think it's going to go higher in price. So if you think it's going to go higher in price, why would you actually ever use it as a form of currency to buy anything? You know, like that would be me buying a stock like buying Amazon or Celsius or some other stock and then using that stock to go buy groceries. That'd be the stupidest fucking thing in the world, because if I think the stock's going higher, why the hell would I go buy something with it? Right. So, like, I, I mean, that's the big flaw that I see. So I don't know. I mean, but I'm the wrong person to ask. Like, I've never touched crypto or NFT. So I'm, I'm obviously not bullish on either of them, but I might be completely wrong. Or like, I think I'm jealous. Like, there is a... <laughs> Yeah, like there's a part of me that's like jealous that I didn't get into Bitcoin like 10 years ago when it was like yeah. 10 cents or I didn't get into NFTs a few years ago and like mine my or not mine like I don't know create like whatever the hell mm-hmm. you do create these digital fucking rocks and then sell them for $50,000 like my brother did 
my brother knew about Bitcoin like at the beginning. He went to NC State. His major is like computer engineering. So he knows all sorts of crazy shit. And when Bitcoin first came out, I remember him talking to me about it. And I was like, that sounds stupid. <laughs> and, him and, and him and his roommates, like for fun, they were like, fuck it. They bought another computer and started mining Bitcoin. And they were mining like one to two a day. And my brother got audited by the, the IRS. So it kind of like freaked him out before he made any real money while it was still like, you know, 30 bucks or something. So he sold it all. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, like you could have had so much fucking money. It's crazy to think about. But yeah, it's like, you know, a lot of people go into investing in my, like what when I've talked to people and they just expect it to be like, get rich quick. And it's like, no, dude. 99.9999% of the time, you're not going to put in $5 and then wake up the next morning and be like, oh, I have a million dollars. I think that's the issue with a lot of people. They, they don't, they're not fucking patient enough. <laughs> you know, I call them shit coins. You know, <laughs> all of these like scammy coins that people are, yep. people are creating and then they find some influencer or celebrity to fucking pump it. You know, you're buying these coins for like fractions of a penny, and you're like, oh, I'll spend like $5,000 and I'll own like a million of these. And if mm -hmm. it just goes to like a dollar, I'll be a billionaire. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, six months later, it goes to zero, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. And then, like, Kim Kardashian just got nailed by the SEC because she was, I saw that. Yeah. She just got fined like 150000 or no, maybe a million dollars. I think it was like 1.5 million. Yeah, it, was or a it was a lot. But not for her, but it was a lot. She was pumping some shit coin on Instagram last year, you know, and I'm guessing a lot of people lost a lot of money. And then, you know, the SEC found out about it. And, you know, that's like these influencers are being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to pump this crap and they're not disclosing it. And, yeah. you know, the founders, like whoever's creating these shit coins is just trying to get a mob of people to pump the price up so they can sell out themselves. I mean, and there's literally thousands of these coins. Every single one of them is basically a scam. Like none of them are ever going to turn into Bitcoin or Ethereum. But like, right, like you said, too many people have hope and they're like, they get these crazy like ideas. Like the GameStop scenario, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Dogecoin. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that bad stuff was happening during the pandemic. People weren't working. The government People were desperate. Money. Yep. Yep. And a lot of them blew up their accounts. Like they got lucky on a few trades, on a few options trades, and they thought they were you know, geniuses. And then they all blew up their Robinhood accounts. So <laughs> yeah. some of them will never come back to investing because they think it's just a big scam, but it's because they weren't doing it right. Yeah. That's what I try to tell people. Obviously, I'm not a financial advisor. So anybody listening, don't fucking listen to me. But I've had friends that are like, oh, that's cool. You invest in the stock market. How did you get started? And my money in the stock market, I don't plan on touching it for at least 10 years, right. if not longer. You know, that's my whole intention with it. So people that go into it that are like even a year, I'm like, nah, dude, you don't know what's going to happen. The most basic way to get started is, you know, put $500 or $1,000 into an account, you know, decide how much you want to add to that account every month and like put it on auto pay or yep. auto bill, whatever the hell it's called. And every month you're buying, you know, a couple different ETFs like the QQQ, which is the NASDAQ 100, SPY, which is the S&P 500 stocks. Like that's the most basic way to get started. That means you're, you know, you're exposed to the market, you're diversified. You don't have to think about it. Like every month you're putting in 
whatever it is. And then like you get to a certain point, you're like, okay, like it's kind of boring to just own ETFs. Like I want to own some individual stocks. Then, you know, start off buying what you know, like Apple, Amazon, Mm -hmm. Uber, like the products and services that you use every single freaking day. Buy those stocks to start with because you already know the companies, like you already know the brand and you know the products and services and you continue to use them. You know, Netflix, like think about all the people that started using Netflix 10 years ago, paying 10 bucks a month, but never thought to actually buy the stock. And yeah. the stock is probably up like 3000% when mm-hmm. they first started a Netflix account. Or when I bought my first iPhone in like 2007, I should have bought Apple stock, which is probably up 2000% you know, since the iPhone came out or yeah. like Amazon, when I started, you know, first started buying sh- pointless shit off Amazon, like I should have bought this <laughs> stock. So like people just, they overlook how easy investing can be if you just invest in what you know. So yeah, I, I think it makes you just pay attention to stuff more, be more aware oh, of like, sure. what am I buying? What am I interested in? Which doesn't always work out in the stocks for sure. I've totally bought companies like, yeah, it's great. And it took a shit. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, you go through these, these booms and these busts in the stock market, you know, obviously 2020, 2021 were very good years. And then towards the end of 2021, you know, the market was obviously overvalued. Interest rates had to start going up as interest rates go up. Typically stocks go down and, you know, you've seen a lot of people lose a lot of money. And then like, even in my own room, like in my stock twits room, you know, when the markets were bottoming out in June of this year, like people were just getting very frustrated. Like they were annoyed that they were losing money, you know, like they had no patience. When I start to see those messages, like I'm ready to sell everything and go to cash. I know that we're close to the bottom. When people are just like ready to wave the white flag, I give up. This is too hard. The pain and suffering is almost over because that's what happens. Most, a lot of retail investors, they love to buy the top and sell the bottom when in theory, you're supposed to do the opposite, right? When stocks are getting hammered, that's when you should be buying stocks. March of 2020, when stocks bottomed out to you know November or December of 2021, I mean, the market was up like 100%. Mm-hmm. That's not when you should be buying stocks, you know, because typically when you get a rally that big, you're overdue for a pullback. You know, when Google's down 30, 40%, when Amazon's down 50%, people start to panic and they're like, oh my God, what if it goes down another 30%? I tell people, like, if you're a long-term investor and you like a company and it's down 50%, start to buy it, like start to average into it. So maybe, you know, if it was $200 a year ago, now it's $100. You think worst case scenario, it goes to $75. What you can do on these platforms is set up buy, you know, limit orders. Let's say, you know, you want to buy $1,000 at every $5 increment, start your position at $100 and then literally put in a buy order at 95, at 90, at 85, then you don't have to think about it. If the stock pulls back another 10 or 15%, you get to average down into your position. If the stock doesn't, you know, pull back and, and goes higher, you know, you'll be glad you at least started a small position. That's how I handle investing. You know, like if I think a stock could pull back another, like, so I started a position in Tesla the other day. So I haven't owned Tesla in probably a year and a half and the stock's down. from its all-time high just like six months ago. So I started a small position, 1.5% of my portfolio in Tesla at like $205. I think worst case scenario, it pulls back to like 185, which is the 200-week moving average. 
I'll have limit orders from 205 down to 185 in increments. So if the stock does get down in my worst case scenario, I'll get filled on a few of those orders. If it doesn't pull back and it goes to 250, I'll be glad I had at least a one and a half percent position. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, super informational. I just nerd out when we get into the finances for (laughs) sure. (laughs) I just had one more question for you. Where can people find you at? Let's clarify your Instagram situation (laughs) also. (laughs) So I'm Jonah Lupton on every platform. No underscores. No underscores, (laughs) no hyphens, no periods, no nothing. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, LinkedIn... I'm just Jonah Lupton, first name, last name. And then jonahlupton.com is my website. And then luptoncapital.com is my business website where you can find the links to my Substack newsletter, my Stock Twits room, my Seeking Alpha service, and then the link to what will be the podcast someday. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. It's been so good to catch up with you. Well, thank you, Crump. I'm going to go make some chicken and rice. I got to feed bottles, right? Nice. <laughs> It was good to talk to you. I hope you have a good night. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. That's it for another episode of the Fuck the Status Quo podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys like what I'm doing here. If not, then live your life, man. Set yourself free from my voice. I mean, why have you even gotten this far? (laughs) But if you know someone who would enjoy listening to this, please share this episode with them or post it to your story. Or you can go fucking bananas and run around town telling everybody that you run into. And then leave this podcast review because it really helps to get the word out there and help other people find this podcast. So that's it. That's my plug. Be a good person by leaving a review. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you guys in the next one.